This week, Latin American consumer finance firm Alpha Latam files Chapter 11 cases in Delaware, and Judge Swain rules standing does not preclude DRA parties' request for adequate protection. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zubkis. Julian Bolan will be joining me for the week in review. Also this week, LimeTree non-debtor affiliates object to dip and Hertz debtors move to dismiss bond trustee Makehole adversary. For this week's deep dive, Reorg Sean Daly talks to Jared Elias about his and his colleagues' recently published paper on corporate governance and bankruptcy, where they conduct an empirical analysis on the rise of bankruptcy directors and their impact on the U.S. bankruptcy process. It's Friday, August 6th. Alpha Latam Management and certain of its affiliates that operate its Colombian consumer financial services business filed for Chapter 11 protection on Sunday, August 1st in Delaware, with approximately $730 million of funded debt obligations outstanding, including two series of unsecured notes totaling $700 million. Certain holders of those notes are members of the ad hoc group and would act as dip note purchasers under the dip facility. All of the debtor's assets are unencumbered. According to the first trade declaration, after the debtors, Mexican non-debtor affiliates and other affiliated non-debtors identified errors regarding the Mexican segment of Alpha's business, they retained independent counsel who provided advice in connection with the investigation of the accounting errors, while Alex Partners and Rothschild were hired to analyze Alpha's liquidity position and cash flow projections and assist with lender negotiations and develop options for a potential restructuring. On April 20th, Alpha publicly announced errors in the accounting of its derivative positions and the need to restate its financial statements for the years ending 2018 and 2019, along with additional errors related to loan loss provisions and reserves for certain accounts receivables. The restatement and failure to deliver audited 2020 financials or first quarter financials triggered defaults under the company's debt docs, and the debtors were unsuccessful in negotiating forbearance, eventually causing the company to stop all originations. Starting in May, with Rothschild's help, the debtor started marketing the unencumbered Colombian loan portfolio in order to raise cash. According to the first declaration, as liquidity tightened, it became clear to the debtors that the best path for restructuring would be to sell substantially all the debtor's Colombian assets in a 363 sale. The debtors say that they are negotiating with potential buyers and are optimistic that they will select a stocking horse and file a bid procedure motion in the near term. Around June 18th, Alpha started discussions with an ad hoc group of senior note holders represented by Cleary regarding a dip and other potential sources of financing. The debtors selected the proposal from certain members of the ad hoc group and obtained a dip financing commitment on August 1st for a $45 million facility. The debtors say they intend to use dip proceeds to fund intercompany loans to the Mexican affiliates, which although not a part of the Chapter 11 proceedings, are considering all options, including a possible sale of substantially all their assets for repayment of the intercompany facility. Judge J. Kate Stickles approved $17.5 million in interim dip finding at the first day hearing. In the Lime Tree Bay Chapter 11 cases, several parties, including the non-debtor-affiliated terminal operators and the United States, have lodged objections to the final approval of the debtor's upcoming proposed dip financing, as well as the debtor's proposed continuation of the interim dip financing. The debtors extended the final dip hearing, originally scheduled for August 2nd, and further continued the hearing on the dip and bidding procedures motions to August 9th at 4.30 p.m. Eastern. The contested motion to extend the automatic stay to class actions against non-debtor defendants has likewise been moved to the same date and time. In their objection, the terminal entities underscore the quote-unquote separate but presently interdependent nature of their business operations with the debtors. Although noting it is in the best interest for the terminals and the debtors to work collaboratively, the filing states that the reorganization, quote, cannot be pursued or effectuated on the backs of the terminal entities with little or no compensation as proposed by the current dip financing, end quote. Echoing arguments made at the first day hearing, the terminal entities object to the fact that the currently proposed dip financing and budget do not provide sufficient liquidity or permit the debtors to pay the terminal entities for their post-petition services under their terminal service agreements, or TSAs, which the debtors are seeking to reject in their restructuring. The Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors has also raised concerns that the proposed dip is, quote, effectively a road to nowhere, end quote, and that the sale-related milestones requiring a stalking horse bid within 60 days of the petition date and the sale closing within 120 days do not appear to be realistic. According to the terminal entity's objection, under the TSAs, the terminal entities and the debtors, among other things, quote, jointly own as tenants in common certain of the facilities and property, end quote, and the debtors, quote, incur approximately $6 million in tank storage fees plus additional fees, end quote, per month to reserve storage capacity at the terminal. The terminal entities assert that these payments are secured by warehouse liens on petroleum products produced by the debtors and that the debtors are $17 million in arrears, with $6 million of that amount entitled to administrative expense priority. 
pointing to what they say is insufficient language in the interim dip order that, quote, made some provision for payment, end quote, but did not require the debtors to remain current on their post-petition obligations, the terminal entities argue that the proposed order to extend the interim dip finance, end quote, should be clear that the terminal entities are paid in full under the TSAs and the court should not approve the proposed dip financing that, on its face, pushes the debtors further into administrative insolvency, end quote. On Wednesday, at an omnibus hearing in Puerto Rico's Title III cases, Judge Laura Taylor Swain ruled from the bench on the renewed motion brought by Servicer and Collateral Monitor for the GDB Debt Recovery Authority, or the DRA parties, seeking adequate protection or stay relief against the Commonwealth and the Puerto Rico Highway and Transportation Authority, and on Cobra Acquisition's motion to lift the administrative stay to allow it to pursue its administrative expense claim against the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority related to emergency work it performed in the aftermath of the 2017 hurricanes. After hearing argument on the DRA's motion, which was limited to issues of standing, Judge Swain overruled objections from the PROMESA Oversight Board and the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authorities insofar as it related to DRA Party's request for adequate protection, but deferred her ruling on the objection to stay relief pending further clarification on the nature and scope of this stay relief sought by the DRA Parties. Judge Swain also denied COBRA's lift stay motion, ruling that COBRA has not demonstrated that there has been a material change in circumstances from when the court imposed the stay that would justify stay relief. Judge Swain also denied a motion for the appointment of a retail investor committee brought by a pro se bondholder. Finding that the bondholder had failed to meet the onerous standard necessary for such a commitment's appointment, and the court declined to appoint a committee discretionarily. On Monday, the reorganized Hertz debtors filed a motion to dismiss unsecured notes indentured trustee Wells Fargo's adversary complaint seeking make-whole payments or, in the alternative, contract rate post-petition interest. Hertz maintains that under the now effective Chapter 11 plan, Class 5 unsecured debt claims, including those of the note holders, are unimpaired. The debtors note that recovery for unsecured note holders under the plan was further supplemented by participation rights in the reorganized equity offering, and was far beyond any initially expected recovery and reflected, quote-unquote, every iota of the note holder's legal entitlement. Addressing the make-whole count, the motion to dismiss asserts that the factual context did not trigger the optional redemption payment under the plain language of the notes indenture. Through these arguments, the debtors distinguished the Third Circuit's EFH decision relied upon by the indenture trustee based on differences in the language between the EFH and Hertz bond indentures. The debtors further assert that any optional redemption payment is the equivalent of unmatured interest and must therefore be disallowed under Bankruptcy Code Section 502b2. Turning to the second count of the complaint seeking post-petition interest, the debtors again assert that disallowance under Section 502b2 applies and explicitly disallows any claim for post-petition interest on unsecured claims. Surveying the case law regarding the so-called solvent debtor exception to this black letter rule, the debtors conclude that, quote, unsecured creditors of a solvent debtor case are entitled, at most, to post-petition interest at the federal judgment rate, end quote, and not the contract rate sought by the note holders. Topper's stories this week included, New York seeks default judgment of opioid liability against Endo for perpetrating gigantic fraud by hiding smoking gun evidence. Aurelius warns treatment of 4.75% notes under Malincrot plan is transparently legal. Calls treatment of classics, guts, substantive consolidation, plain and simple. Spurned Euronotes group sues Hertz affiliates in New York State Court for breakup fee. Lengthy nuclear regulatory oversight may offset Talon's flexibility to transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries. Now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Good morning, thanks all, and I'm happy to report that the Mad Russia earnings are characterized last week, and the week before that is slowing to trickle this week, just enough to keep your Excel formula skills well-oiled. Anyways, on Monday, August 9th, Hertz Global Holdings and Avaya Report. Tuesday, August 10th, earnings from Tidewater and Bonanza Creek, Omnibus Hearing in Malincrote, Discovery Status Conference in Brazos Electric. Wednesday, August 11th, Chesapeake reports their earnings. Thursday, August 12th, Talon Energy's earnings. There's a topical one. And confirmation hearing in Purdue Pharma. Friday, August 13th, unlucky day. Continued confirmation hearing in Purdue. And that's it. Back to New York. And next up, Rurik, Sean Daly speaks to Jared Elias, Byron M. Gregory Chair in Business Law and Professor of Law at USC Hastings College of Law, who has recently published a paper with Ehud Kamar and Kobe Castiel, The Rise of Bankruptcy Directors. The paper analyzes the proliferation of bankruptcy experts who often join boards of directors on the eve of a bankruptcy filing as so-called independent directors and the impact of such directors on bankruptcy outcomes, including creditor recoveries. If you would like to read Jared's recent contribution to Rurik's Expert Views series, please reach out to us, Rurik's sales representative. 
Joining us today on the podcast is Jared Elias, the Bayan M. Gregory Chair in Business Law and Professor of Law at the University of California Hastings College of the Law. Reorg podcast aficionados may recall Jared's 2019 appearance discussing the PG&E bankruptcy. Jared, welcome back. So we're here today to discuss your paper, co-authored with Ahud Kamar and Kobe Castile, The Rise of Bankruptcy Directors. The paper has received some well-deserved buzz in the financial press. To start, how are you using this term, bankruptcy director? What did you set out to research, and what did you find? Sure. So um, over the past few years, I'd been hearing from practitioners that something important had changed in the way that companies were preparing for and making decisions in Chapter 11. And that something was that there was this new breed of bankruptcy professional who styled themselves as independent directors, and they specialize on joining the boards of firms that are in financial distress, um, and then making the important restructuring decisions, right? And so I became interested in this, and there were some high-profile examples, some of which I talk about in the paper, you know, Neiman Marcus, right? You famously had um, a couple of independent directors come in and deal with, you know, some of the claims against the private equity sponsor. And that was another piece of what I kept hearing from practitioners, which is a lot of times these independent directors are being brought in by controlled corporations, corporations with a um, majority shareholder, often private equity owned firms, um, because there's a board conflict with respect to claims against the sponsor. And these people specialize in investigating and resolving those conflicts. And there was obviously a range of opinions about the quality of the job that they were doing. At least that's what I was hearing from practitioners. Um, so I decided that it would be useful to try to you know, dig into kind of the data and figure out you know, what's actually going on in bankruptcy practice. Um, you know, by way of background, you know, I was a bankruptcy lawyer during the financial crisis. I practiced from 2008 and I left practice in 2011 to, you know, go, to go the professor route. And this independent director thing was not a piece of the bankruptcy practice that I could remember. You certainly did have boards of directors of companies, but traditionally the board role was somewhat passive. Um, and so I decided I would dig into this. And so my co-authors who were also interested in it, Ehud and Kobe are both professors at Tel Aviv University. Um, the three of us set out to figure out what's going on in practice. You know, how big is this trend? Is this something that's just in some high profile cases like Nine West? Um, or is this something that, you know, really is a piece of the way that the bankruptcy world works? Um, and so we then went to the court dockets of all of the large bankruptcy cases that filed between 2004, which is as far back as you could get um, court dockets online, um, to 2019. Um, and we looked through all of the court pleadings to try to find evidence that there were independent directors that took an activist role in the bankruptcy process. And what we found is actually um, as much as practitioners had suggested to me that this was an important new trend, it was much more important than we'd understood. Um, because it's not just the case that independent directors, or as we call them, bankruptcy directors, for reasons I'll explain in a minute, were involved in these big private equity bankruptcies where there was you know, a controversial conveyance of property prior to the bankruptcy. Um, actually, increasingly, they're just a piece of the bankruptcy landscape, and they're involved in more and more and more cases. Right. So to give you some numbers, um, of all the Chapter 11 firms or the large Chapter 11 firms, um, in 2004, only about 3% of them mentioned to the bankruptcy court that we have an independent director on our board. Um, in 2019, that number was 48%. Now, there are reasons for that other than um, you know, this new trend, right? that maybe the distribution of firms is a little bit different in 2019, so there's more need for having an expert on the board. But the bigger piece of this is that bankruptcy practice changed over the past 15 years. And if you look at the data sometime around 2012, or right as I left bankruptcy practice, um, these independent directors started to arrive on the scene. Um, and when we arrived at the point that we're at today, which is where you know, independent directors are a feature of a well-advised debtor that files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Right? When that company arrives in Chapter 11, they normally appointed an independent director um, prior to you know, prior to filing for bankruptcy, normally a few months before, and that person is there to make the big bankruptcy decisions, to testify in bankruptcy court, and to interface with restructuring counsel and make the business decisions on behalf of the company. 
So this is just a real change in the way that bankruptcy law is practiced. And to me, it feels a little, a little bit like maturation of bankruptcy practice, um, where, you know, if you look back at the beginning of the code in 1978, right, and you look at like the bankruptcy cases from the 1980s and the 1990s, um, bankruptcy over that time became a much shorter, briefer, and more predictable process. You know, you talk to the lawyers who practiced at the very beginning of the code, and it was like the Wild West. Um, it's less the Wild West now. It still has some Wild West character. And one of the reasons it's less the Wild West is because you know, innovative restructuring professionals have come onto the scene and created new things that companies do in bankruptcy. You know, let's do a quick Section 363 sale. It wasn't obvious that you could do that in 1978. Um, let's, you know, have a toggle plan in order to deal with potential problems. Um, or let's put somebody on the board who will run a professionalized Chapter 11 process that creditors can, you know, rely on that person, at least in theory. So this feels a lot to me like a legal innovation that was pioneered by practitioners and by sort of entrepreneurial bankruptcy professionals to make the boardroom a more important and central part of the Chapter 11 process. Thank you. Yeah, that's a that's a great overview. And in, in speaking of you know practicing at, at different points in time, I think I was a, a junior associate at at a law firm right as you know these these appointments became a lot a lot more common and one one thing that struck me and, and this is maybe a, a theme for us to delve into is you know sort of seeing seeing how it works I, I remember being a, a junior associate and kind of the bells going off in the back of my head at a, at a couple of places that huh this you know this doesn't seem quite right and so there's you know, I, I realized I was thinking about sort of non-distressed M&A corporate governance principles, uh, you know, getting things like approval from a majority of minority of, of uh, or a majority of minority shareholders and um, other other things of that nature. But do you, do you have any thoughts on sort of how, you know, how much of, of the, the, new evolving process in bankruptcy is borrowed from corporate governance outside of bankruptcy. Where does it line up? Where are, you know, some of the fault lines? Yeah. So it certainly feels a lot like this is an example of bankruptcy law um, absorbing an idea from corporate law. Now, I can't prove that because I, I haven't you know, done intensive interviews of the people who originated the trend. It's also not obvious that there's one individual who originated the trend. There are a number of people who are prominent in the space you know, whose names are mentioned in the paper um, and whose names are probably familiar to a lot of your listeners. But it certainly feels like bankruptcy law absorbing an idea from corporate law. So corporate law over the past 20 years or so, um, really since Enron, um, has been under, you know, there's been a concerted effort by activists, by academics, um, by practitioners, and by judges to force companies to have independent, well-advised boards, where the idea is that somebody joins the board and they're there to be an independent director. And the meaning of independent director in corporate law is generally that this person doesn't have a conflict of interest um, with respect to shareholders. They're there to zealously monitor the firm and to make the right decisions with a fiduciary duty that they owe to shareholders as a whole, right? And so that became a corporate law best practice. You know, the exchanges put in rules. Um, Sarbanes-Oxley has rules that, you know, helped to stimulate this. And we reached the point where outside of bankruptcy, when a company makes a big decision, they almost always now have an independent board, at least a large public company, um, and some private companies too. Um, and the independent people on the board have independence that's defined as independence from managers, right? And they are loyal to shareholders. Um, there are some companies where you have independent directors and you have controlling shareholders, and the independent directors are there to be representatives of the minority shareholders. They, they're not people who are in the pocket of the controllers. Um, and that's how big companies make important decisions. You know, when the Disney company wants to make a decision about whether or not they should open a new theme park, Right? It's an independent board um, that will be well advised by counsel. And you know, corporate law has pushed them in the direction of subsidizing this idea of an independent director and having a board process around everything. 
right? And if you do that, corporate law judges in the Delaware Chancery Court will reward you um, by giving any decision you make a very deferential review, um, even in the events that it causes large losses to the corporation. So this idea is, is, is key to how corporate law works at the moment. And this feels a lot like, you know, sort of the migration of that concept into bankruptcy law, where bankruptcy is a really big decision. There are decisions in bankruptcy that are massive decisions that companies make. And so why not also have an independent person making that decision? But the meaning of independent is different here, which is why we don't call them in the paper independent directors, right? Independent director in corporate law, somebody who is independent of management. Independent director in bankruptcy law is often used to mean somebody who's independent of everyone, right? Do you put Jared Elias on the board because Jared has a great bankruptcy resume and he's there to make the, the right objective decisions for you know, stakeholders as a whole, right? Um, that's really different. Outside of bankruptcy, shareholders elect independent directors to serve as their representatives. Um, in many of these cases, you have you know, controlled corporations and controlling shareholders um, appointing people to be independent directors. But then the idea is that you know, Jared is hired by, and I should stop using my name and talking about myself in the third person, um, where you, your, your director is hired by the controlling shareholder. Um, and as soon as that person's hired, they no longer have any loyalty to the person who hired them. And they were brought into the scene to do the right thing for the company as a whole. So that's almost like a trustee, right? A chapter 11 trustee, um, except they're not appointed by the judge and the DOJ, the U.S. trustee's office. They're appointed by you know, the controlling shareholder or they're appointed by the board itself, depending on the situation. So, and, you know, there are also some fact patterns um, where they're appointed by creditors or on advice of creditors, things like that. But most of the time, it seems like they're appointed by controlling shareholders. So this is, seems like it's a migration of an idea and a concept from corporate law and best practices into corporate, uh, and corporate governance into bankruptcy law. Um, and one of the things that is really compelling about that is like, of course, obviously this would happen at some point. Right? Although there are unique distinctions in the bankruptcy context that raise questions that you know we're trying to explore in the project, and I think have you know been a subject of great debate among practitioners. And so, where does where does this where does the criticism that this you know breaks down or is not as useful a, a tool in in the bankruptcy context as it is out of court? So that's a tough question to answer because the truth is a lot of people are very critical of the idea that independent directors are all that useful outside of bankruptcy, right? Now you have lots of criticism of directors who are overboarded, boards that are still passive, but you know the consensus is that the sort of era of the imperial CEO of the 1990s is something that is past and that boards today do on average a better job than they did 20 years ago, whether they do such a good job that their judgment ought to substitute um, for a, you know, a, a sort of um, fulsome judicial investigation of contested decisions is you know, a question that's much debated in the corporate governance community. Um, so in the bankruptcy world, um, bankruptcy directors, as we call them, um, come with a lot of controversy. And that controversy is rooted in the fact that they stand up in front of court and say, judge, you know, we are objective experts. Um, you know, here is my long resume of bankruptcy accomplishments, and I'm going to do the right thing for the company. And a lot of bankruptcy litigation and sort of the outcomes that creditors have in bankruptcy is really about, you know, causes of action and evidence that kind of move their bargaining needle a little bit in one direction or the other. Um, and the thought, at least in among certain you know, institutions, especially that invest in unsecured debt, but in other parts of the capital structure as well, is that the existence of this purported expert um, then sort of reduces the bargaining power that they might otherwise ha expect to have, um, especially with regards to liability for pre-bankruptcy transactions where maybe the controlling shareholder was enriched at the expense of creditors. Um, I believe in... Uh, the Neiman Marcus bankruptcy, and we quote this in the paper, um, you know, the lawyer from Pachulski who was you know, like enraged by what the bankruptcy directors had done in that case, um, you know, talked about how the bankruptcy directors had sort of hung over the unsecured creditors committee like the sort of Damocles. And this is, you know, a 
one of the reasons why this practice is so controversial is, you know, traditionally we're we're all used to a world where a company files for bankruptcy, you know, creditors either represent themselves or there's an official committee appointed to represent them. And, you know, they litigate and they investigate causes of action and they try to uncover facts that will give them bargaining power to compel a somewhat higher settlement. And there's a sense in the bankruptcy community that this practice of appointing bankruptcy directors may be undercutting to some extent the ability of creditors to do this traditional function that the bankruptcy code allocated to them. Right? And so this is just a very different context and setting than outside of bankruptcy where you know independent directors are controversial, um, but the controversy is maybe they're actually in the pockets of management. You know, here it's well actually maybe they're in the pockets of you know, the, the former controlling shareholders who really shouldn't matter because they're out of the money, or they're in the pockets of, you know, some other case player or case constituent, one creditor group or another, right? So these kind of classic bankruptcy conflict of interest questions are now just sort of exploding in the context of these bankruptcy directors. And so that's maybe a good transition to move to the, the theme of repeat players and, and the fact that it's a, it's a very small world um, so you, you use a lot of a lot of really great uh, catchy terms in in the paper, uh, super repeaters, kind of looking at these you know independent directors for for hire who, uh, I, I think you mentioned earlier the critique in the general corporate governance world that you know some people are maybe over overboarded and can't devote the requisite amount of time and attention to, you know, the four public company boards that you're on. And then you have certain of these super repeaters who, uh, you know, under, under oath can't recall the number of boards they're on, which is, which is just kind of a, you know, a, a funny contrast, but maybe, maybe you could, you know, kind of walk us through, I, I think one of the, the really great dynamics that the, the paper highlights is this idea of audition bias. Yeah. So, so, Let's start this discussion with a caveat, and the caveat is this. So the idea that boards of directors of firms that are in financial trouble could benefit from having an expert on the board who has a great deal of knowledge and experience is something that seems, you know, to us at least, to be an intuitively correct idea, right? There's Boards of directors often add people when they're going to do something hard. They're going to expand to Asia. They add somebody who really knows supply chain issues in Asia. You're going to go through a restructuring process with your creditors. Why not add somebody who has restructuring experience? So you wouldn't want to add somebody to the board who didn't have a resume that pointed to deep connections in the restructuring world, because what would be the point? You know, that's not who you want to be sort of captaining the restructuring ship. You could let, you know, an industry expert who's already on the board just run the bankruptcy process on advice of counsel, which is the way things worked on average 15 years ago. Um, so. The criticism here is that um, when people get these engagements, they're fairly lucrative and inherently short-term engagements that don't necessarily have you know, a continue, an offer of continuing employment once the restructuring process ends. So we don't have good data on exactly how long these engagements last for, but two years is probably you know, a reasonable number based on what we saw in the data. You join the board a few months before the Chapter 11 filing, you're on the board, and then the company leaves bankruptcy, and you know, we don't know this, but on average, you know, more than likely these people move off the board, right? They're bankruptcy specialists, the company's no longer in a restructuring situation, right? So this leads to what we call auditioning bias, which is this idea that we fear that um, the people who receive and are appointed to these directorships may have incentives um, to make decisions in the context of individual bankruptcy cases that don't necessarily maximize value for the constituents to that bankruptcy, but rather position them to be appointed to future directorships. They have a sense of how things are going to go. And so you try to make sure this company gets through comp bankruptcy really quickly. You try to make sure that the sponsor gets a settlement that the sponsor can live with for any potential self-dealing claims. And that's not necessarily because you have bad intentions. You may fully believe that these are the right outcomes for the company as a whole. You don't want to see um, creditors litigate these claims to death. You know That's where your objective judgment is. And professionals often disagree with one another about what the right thing to do is. Um, but the fear is that that auditioning bias might overwhelm, for example, um, the potential that you might choose to litigate something to death because there actually is value there and the claims are good. And if you took it to trial, you'd win. 
right? So this auditioning bias raises questions about who controls the bankruptcy process and you know what equities are being considered when a director enters into a settlement, um, whose interests are truly being maximized, and all the other things that are just inherent in Chapter 11, right? Congress knew all these conflicts of interest existed in Chapter 11. That's why creditors are empowered in this unusual way with a committee, with professionals paid for out of the bankruptcy estate, and so on. So the fear is that this auditioning bias um, erodes and reduces the efficacy of the check of the system of checks and balances that Congress created in 1978 that is the bankruptcy system that most leading bankruptcy lawyers grew up in. So what, what do you see once... Once a, a company has appointed these directors, filed for Chapter 11, um, what what do you see them doing? What are the, the themes and, and trends that come up? So we began this project because we were motivated by these high-profile examples of the nine wests of the world, right? These companies that added these independent directors who then turned around and investigated the sponsors that appointed them. Um, but what we discovered is that only looked like about half the cases in the sample. In the other case, these bankruptcy directors were just brought on board to run the restructuring process. Um, there are cases like Toys R Us where the bankruptcy directors were appointed to different subsidiaries to facilitate a bargaining process you know, across a company with substantial intercompany conflict in order to not have committees appointed at all those subsidiaries. And you know, people seem to think that that was a reasonable substitute process that may have been more efficient. Um, so these investigation cases really only turned out to be, as I said, about half of the bankruptcy director engagements. So to the extent that somebody you know, has a view based on you know, a few high profile cases or maybe some stuff that they've worked on, that the only time you see these people is when they're investigating claims against the shareholders who just hired them, that's not true at all. Um, sometimes they're added on to the board by creditors. Sometimes they're added on to the board, um, you know, by agreement of everybody in the capital structure. So that happens from time to time. Um, and you know, this goes to the question of, you know, why has this innovation happened? Is this innovation useful? It sure seems like this innovation is useful for many things, which is why you know, in this paper, we try to do some things where we compare firms with bankruptcy directors to firms without bankruptcy directors. But my prediction would be that we're headed for a world where virtually every company that files for bankruptcy that's well advised, that has lawyers that have been working with them for a while and thinking about the restructuring alternatives, are going to have bankruptcy directors. Interesting, right? Because as you as you note, it, they're not only appointed in the the most contentious situations. Um, and it, it seems like it's really, you know, it's, it's a process, it's a process solution to get you back in the land of business judgment where you're only judged on process as opposed to, you know, these situations where you might be borderline entire fairness in a court looking at its substance. So, you know, if, if you can, um, maybe this is putting it too strongly, if, if you can avoid or subvert the higher standard of review... Hold by taking the lower level process action, then right, why wouldn't you do that every every time? Yeah, and, and there really there are two possibilities with what you just said, which I think is completely right. So one possibility is that you know this is more about litigation, where the board is going to make the decisions the board is going to make, but you bring in an objective expert in the hope of having a little bit of an edge in the eyes of the judge when you're trying to defend a contested decision. Um, then there's a sort of less cynical view, which is this isn't about litigation, it's about substantive expertise, where like, the board really does have a hunger for having someone in the boardroom other than the bankruptcy lawyers who can run the bankruptcy process. You know, Maybe it's about adding a minder for the bankruptcy lawyers, so the bankruptcy lawyers are kind of kept in the lane that the company wants as opposed to having you know, sort of the advantage of a body of expertise that the board doesn't share. So all of these things, I think, are you know, reasonable possibilities. Um, but the business judgment point is an important one, where you know, bankruptcy lawyers are really, really good at trying to position facts to get judges to do what they want. You know, there was a judge um, here in San Francisco um, who complained in a court decision, and I forget the case. It was an ice cream company, as I remember it. You know, he complains that whenever he sees a debtor in his courtroom these days, like a large company, and they, there aren't a lot of large companies filing for bankruptcy here in the Northern District. Um, whenever he sees one, they, you know, inevitably they show up in court and they say, Judge, we can't survive a bankruptcy process. We're, we're going to die soon. 
um, if you don't let us do a 363 um, and we're going to do it in 20 days. And, you know, he said, you know, that's that's the context in which debtors are arriving in my courtroom. And, you know, it makes me just want to work at consumer cases where there's something for me to do because I'm not prepared to call those bluffs. Now, he didn't say that part, but that was kind of implicit in how he wrote about it. So, you know, this is just a way in which, you know, the cynical view is this is a way in which bankruptcy lawyers are helping to frame, you know, a set of facts for a bankruptcy judge in order to convince them that something contested is the right thing to do. But there is this other possibility, which is compelling, that there's real expertise that is being brought into the boardroom. And while we don't see this in our data, there certainly is a possibility that it's enhancing the bankruptcy process in some way. Mm-hmm. Well, to, to stick maybe for a minute with the more cynical view, because that's the, the you know, a little more fun to, to kick the tires on, uh, the, the paper makes several suggestions or, or, you know, proposed solutions to kind of deal with some of the, the criticisms of the process. Um, could you walk us through what, what those might be? Sure. Um, so, you know, one of the things we see in the paper is that, you know, we find in a regression analysis that when you have a bankruptcy director making decisions that, you know, unsecured creditors do about 20% worse um, relative to cases where you don't have bankruptcy de- directors making decisions. Now, it's not a causal model, right? So you couldn't say, oh, if you add, you know, Jared Elias, the bankruptcy director to the board, now unsecured creditors are going to do worse. Um, Rather, I think the right way of thinking about it is that in cases where unsecured creditors are doing relatively worse, like a feature of how bankruptcy works now is there's, you know, an independent director or a bankruptcy director calling the shots, right? If you are going into a contentious bankruptcy, you may be somewhat more likely to then add one of these folks to the board. Um, and so that's just a feature of Chapter 11. You know, if you see a bankruptcy director, you know, at least based on how current things currently have been, on average, that'll be a relatively worst case for unsecured creditors, although that will probably change in the future, given my prediction that every company is just going to have one of these people on the board. So what do we do about this? Like, what do we do about the fact that the bankruptcy process now has somebody running around claiming they're an objective expert, and when those people are there, it seems like unsecured creditors are doing worse than they are when they're not there? Probably not causal, you know, or could be somewhat causal, right? Hard to tell. We can't tell from the data that we have. But what do we do about this? Well, one possibility is at the very beginning of the bankruptcy process, you, you know, the judge could hold a hearing. Right. You could have something like a retention motion filed, you know, just like you file a retention motion for, you know, to have Latham and Watkins as your bankruptcy counsel. You file a retention motion to say, I want to appoint this person as my independent director and I'm going to represent this person um, to the judge as an independent person. And, you know, at that point, you could have discovery into this person's conflicts. Um, we, the burden of proof could be on the company to convince the judge that this is true. But then the judge, in making a determination about the independence of this person, um, ought to defer to the voice of creditors. At least this is our view, is that if you have somebody who's put on the board um, and you know you, the, the company says, this is our independent person, this is who we're going to have running the bankruptcy process, and we're going to try to get all of our decisions into business judgment world. And even if that's not explicit, it's kind of implicit, and it's something that Um, the unsecured creditors fear is kind of eroding their bargaining power. Well, if that's the case, then put somebody on the board who the unsecured creditors agree is that person, right? Or put somebody on the board who comes to you from the creditors committee, right? And let's, you know, do a poll of the creditors and see if they all agree. Now, they probably don't need to have unanimous agreement, but you certainly should have substantial supports from all levels of the capital structure saying this person is an independent expert. And if you don't have that, right, let's go back into, as you said, entire fairness world where we'll say, okay, like, you know, companies ought to be allowed if they are in financial trouble to have the best people helping them. And if their view is that adding this person to the board is going to be value additive for everybody, that's their view. And this person can appear in the courtroom as a partisan professional retained by the debtor to accomplish the things that the debtor wants to. You know, nobody would ever think that, um, you know, the debtor's lead law firm is this impartial objective experts, like they're professional, they're not going to act in the same way that you would act if you were pro se, right? Because they're professional, they're going to bring that to the table, they certainly are expertise, but they're not objective. Like their job is to be a zealous advocate on behalf of their clients and the things their clients want. So just view these people that way, and then you get the benefit of that expertise and you don't have the sideshow over, is this person really independent or are they just auditioning for their next gig? 
Interesting. Yeah, maybe uh, for uh, for future reference, but there's almost a, a real-world example of this idea being tested out in the Sanchez Energy bankruptcy um, from December 2019. So the, the setup there was it was ostensibly about a CRO retention motion, but there'd been uh, two independent directors appointed to the board slightly before the bankruptcy, one, uh, actually one of the super repeaters from the paper, and then one, we'll, we'll call them uh, financial sponsor affiliated historically, but also industry expert. And um, two, two groups, the UCC and a group of unsecured bonds both had proposed a CRO candidate. The company went with uh, a different candidate. And the unsecureds wound up at the CRO retention hearing really trying to, to hang their hat on criticizing the independent director's process. Uh, it was fascinating. You know, they said, oh, well, we, we proposed this person who is, who is highly competent. And the debtor said, sure, but, oh, but we like this other person. Um, and at the end of the day, Judge uh, Isger, I believe, um, approved the independent director's choice of CRO over, you know, what you could call the creditor's choice of CRO. So just, I think, a, a great example that, that highlights this, you know, sort of taking a, a process protection, using it to obtain the business judgment deference that the debtor itself would get. Um, and then interestingly, Isger also, the, the independent committee was not entirely free. There were certain instances in which even if it was prim- originally tasked with making a decision, it would have to come back and discuss with the full board. Um, and that it was sort of a, you know, family and management and allegations from all over about various of the, you know, related party things they'd done. So Isger, you know, removed those those remaining strictures on the the independence of the the independent directors and the CRO's decision making process. So maybe a, a fascinating a fascinating one for future review and, a, and an excellent hearing transcript to to read. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I found it fascinating when um, I had a chance to take a look at it. And there's there's a case that I teach. You know, again, this being a borrowed concept from corporate law. Well, I teach the basic corporations class. So there's a case, Air Products v. Air Gas, that I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, where you know one of the facts that's so interesting about it is that, you know, a contested hostile takeover and the acquirer who's being blocked by the target firm's poison pill um, puts three of their own people on the board or three people who are objective experts who they have no contact with other than they call them and they say, would you be interested in getting on the board? And those people get on the board and they do their own analysis of you know, the company's prospects and they say, yeah, actually, um, we can't drop the poison pill, right? We must protect the pill at all costs because this bid is way too low for the intrinsic value of this company. Right? And one could imagine there being something similar in the bankruptcy world where maybe you have you know, sort of slates of directors who are added to the company's boards where each of them is then looking to marshal evidence on behalf of the people who, you know, on behalf of the people who appointed them, or maybe they're there to be truly objective and all of them agree that this is a truly objective group of people. But, you know, all of these, you know, different ways of, you know, appointing directors, of, you know, turning the boardroom, you know, right now I think the framing is that the boardroom has become a substitute for the courtroom, right, where decisions are being made in the boardroom that once upon a time would be made in court. You don't have the federal judge sort of making decisions, you know, making those decisions in the same way. They're not playing that same activist role in shaping the outcome because things are being baked in the boardroom, presented in the courtroom, and then the court process is much less important. But it's easy to see how that could change in the future and cases like Sanchez point to where it could go, where the boardroom is then sort of, you know, determined to a certain extent by what goes on in the courtroom, right? And judges can take back some of that power by, you know, holding this hearing that we suggest would make sense early in the case by shaping um, sort of the pool of people who do this by saying these are things we like about, you know, somebody who's truly independent. Well, this is what truly independent looks like. This is you know, a set of qualifications that we think is a good set of qualifications. And this is traditionally a role that Delaware Chancery Court judges play in corporate law, where they help to steer you know, how companies make decisions about who's added to the board. 
Um, you know, you look in Silicon Valley, for example, and there are lots of, you know, very similar community to the bankruptcy community. People are very close to each other. Um, there have been lots of cases where, you know, corporate law judges have, you know, said, wait a sec, this person can't actually be independent, right? This person is too close. They're enmeshed in the same social world, right? And these decisions help to shape, you know, who's on these boards. Um, and bankruptcy judges so far have not really been willing to make those rulings, or at least perhaps, you know, as Judge Jones suggested in the Neiman case, it doesn't come before them in any way. So one of the advantages of our solution is to try to bring that, you know, make, make these issues central in the court process. Let's talk about who's on the board um, and who they're representing and how the court should treat them before you're talking about the decisions that they made, right? And, you know, I think that would be only beneficial for the bankruptcy process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great point that you raised. That it's sort of you know maybe looking more broadly at the type of, say as it's used in the bankruptcy rules, connections, as as opposed to to purely conflicts or you know for the for the purposes of a, a stock exchange listing, definition of independence. You know you're measuring a connection to the company, but if it's the repeat advisor who is you know, maybe presenting some candidates to the company, perhaps that's the that's the relevant connection to look at um, as, as certain of these creditor constituencies have raised in, in cross-examination of, of directors in contested hearings. Absolutely. So there are a number of cases that we talk about in the paper where, you know, one of the issues is that it seems like the debtor's lead law firm played a substantial role in shaping who got the directorship. Um, and, you know, it seems like that may be something that's not uncommon, although, you know, that's not fully disclosed in all of these cases. But when it is disclosed, that often is important that, you know, some the company doesn't know what to do. You know, the, the law firm, which is their bankruptcy expert, that's why they brought them in. That's why they retained them. They have a list of people who they think would be good on the board, and then they add one of those people. And so this creates a substantial conflict, potentially, going back to the auditioning bias, where you worry that, you know, well, if I'm appointed by the lead law firm, what do I want to do? And like, you know, like as a lawyer, you know, what do we want? Well, we want to look good. And one of the ways we can look good is if this company, which has a lot of issues, gets through bankruptcy really quickly, right? They get through bankruptcy and they are able to steamroll the potential objections of, you know, plan opponents. Um, it just creates conflicts that are hard to actually pin down. So do I have proof that that actually ever happened? No. Um, there isn't proof in the paper that that's ever happened, and I don't think you could find that proof, you know, absent smoking gun emails, um, which, you know, the people are much, the people who do this for a living are much too smart to ever produce. But these are questions that Congress knew would hang over the bankruptcy process, which is why you have sort of the elaborate theater of let's do it in a courtroom. Let's have the circuit court appoint a judge who then sits in robes on a bench. Um, let's have, you know, the these appellate review. Um, although that's a different story these days. Um, let's have an unsecured creditors committee. Let's give a role to the Department of Justice. So these kind of markers of procedural fairness are you know, key to having a bankruptcy system that enjoys public confidence as well as the confidence of investors. So to the extent that this new trend undermines that system of you know, procedural fairness, then you know, there's a chance to innovate on it. Mm -hmm. Well. Jared, thank you so much. I, this has been a, a great, wide-ranging discussion, strategy, uh, tying things back to, to bankruptcy principles. Uh, is there before we before we close it off and, and tell everyone to go read the paper? Is there, <laughs> is there anything else that you you know you would like to add or to to preview for those who are going to go out and, and download the paper after this? Yeah, just, you know, my sincere belief and well, my hope is that, you know, this paper helps to shine a light on something that was happening that everybody kind of knew was going on. But I don't think people really understood, at least most people didn't, just how extensive the trend was, how broad the range of what, you know, these new directors are doing and, you know, how this looks like it's going to become a feature of the modal bankruptcy case. So my hope is that this paper helps to open the door, and there's obviously a few more research to be done into thinking about, you know, how should the bankruptcy system respond to this trend? And I don't think the bankruptcy system has really responded to the trend yet. You know, you look back in history at other innovations that bankruptcy lawyers brought to bankruptcy practice. You know, the, the modern iteration of debtor and possession financing, um, for example. 
you know, well, once upon a time, that was a relatively new thing and bankruptcy lawyers iterated on it. And then there are questions of, you know, what is permissible to give to a dip lender as part of a dip financing? And bankruptcy judges imposed guardrails. Um, and now we have the modern dip financing process, which, you know, I've written about in another project. There's a lot of controversy there as well. Are dip financiers getting too much? Are management teams giving up too much of their own autonomy and control and discretion over the bankruptcy process in order to get money? Do bankruptcy judges need to recalibrate that balance? Right. But bankruptcy judges always impose guardrails on the innovations of practitioners. And I have a lot of confidence that that will happen here, too. And I'm hopeful that this paper and future research that goes out of it, either that I do or that other people do, will help to guide that process. Um, in fact, there's already been a debate among practitioners about whether or not our policy solution is sensible. And some people think it's not. And that's completely fine. Um, you know, I think getting to a, you know, in, in the best universe, we'd try a few different ideas and then see which one worked best and what investors and bankruptcy lawyers and others think is the best way to do this. But, you know, the United States has the world's leading bankruptcy system. And one of the reasons for that is the creativity, skill and talents of our bankruptcy practitioners, um, the investment bankers who work in the space, distressed debt investors and bankruptcy judges. And one of the ways in which that has always played out is you have these new ideas that come into the system that enhance the bankruptcy process and make it more useful to companies when they run into financial trouble, right? We iterate on those, we improve them, there's you know a debate over them, and then we move forward um, with a better bankruptcy system. And this feels like the beginning of something similar, right? Where you know all of a sudden the board is now more central to the bankruptcy process. So what do we do about that? Well, over time, we'll adapt, we'll try things. There will be some high profile cases, you know, like the Neiman case where there are real questions. Um, and then we'll start to answer those questions. And then it'll become a typical feature of Chapter 11 in the same way I expect a company that files for Chapter 11 to have first day motions ready um, or, you know, to propose a key employee incentive plan if that'll be value additive and for unsecured creditors to support that when it makes sense and to oppose it when it doesn't. Right? All of these things are a feature of, of the you know, perpetual cat and mouse game of bankruptcy practice. And you know, it just continues, which is great for commentators like the two of us, because it gives us new things to talk about. I couldn't think of a, a better way to end it than that. Uh, so Jared, thank you very much for your, your time today. And to anyone who has not read uh, the paper, run, don't walk to your, your nearest internet uh, and, and download it. It's, it's excellent reading. So uh, until next time, Jerry, right. thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Sunday.